1: Hi, I'm Madigan, and you're listening to Your Angry Neighborhood Feminist, a podcast that explores the world through a personal feminist perspective. Oh, hello, everybody. All right, I'm turning on Do Not Disturb. I hate it when my phone goes off and you get a little buzzing noise in the background. It's happened a few times, and I'm like, shoot. So, all right, phone is off turned down. I won't be distracted. I am finally getting to this episode. I had planned on getting to it earlier in the day, but you know what? I think someone was looking out for me because the story did not have the somewhat of a conclusion that it did. But before I get into the news, of course, there's a few things that I want to chatter on about. The first thing that I want to let you all know is that there is a new Patreon episode up for the Angry Feminist Book Club. The first episode covering Oranges Are Not the Only Fruit by Jeanette Winterson is up and running. The first episode gets kind of into like the Pentecostal church, the tent revival movement, and into the real story of Jeanette Winterson, the author, and her family because. Oranges was actually kind of like a semi-autobiographical book so the whole time I was reading it I was like oh my gosh I can't wait to learn about the real story behind it and I didn't want to google as I was reading so it was kind of fun for me to go back and kind of discover the truth behind Jeanette's story the fictitious Jeanette into the real life Jeanette so if you're interested in checking out that episode it is now live and ready for your ears You can go to patreon.com slash angryneighborhoodfeminist. There's a link in the show notes. There's a link in the Instagram bio. I now have, I guess Instagram has this feature that I'm so glad they finally made accessible where you can add multiple links now to the bio. So if you click on the links in the bio, one of them will show up as Patreon. Go there. If you want to join the book club, it is $5 a month, and you will get two episodes a month covering one book each month. But if you wanted to go to the $8 level, which I'm calling the feminist faves level, you get all of the book club content, but then you also get all of these episodes ad free and sometimes a little bit early. I mentioned this somewhere and I don't remember if it was on Patreon or on the main feed, but I think I might do like a fun little craft for my like earliest patrons just as like a little thank you and send it out there. So if you're part of the $8 level, there is some kind of like, I guess like extra quirks or whatever. So please join there if you are interested. But wait, There's more. If you stay tuned through the end of this episode, I've got a few minutes tacked on at the end of the most recent episode where I am covering the book Oranges Are Not the Only Fruit. So give it a listen. See if it's something you're interested in. See if you want a little bit more Madigan in your life. And especially after this week's topic, I feel like having a little palate cleanser at the end is going to be very much needed. And when all of you are listening to this, the deadline is like on. So if you haven't sent me your coming out stories, I want them in by the 23rd. If you want to get them into me by the end of the day on the 23rd, that's totally fine. I'm either going to record the episode on the 24th or the 25th. But I want to get as many coming out stories as I possibly can. So if you've been kind of sitting on that and procrastinating, now is the time to do that. You can email me your stories at neighborhoodfeminist at gmail.com or DM me your stories on Instagram at neighborhood feminist. I'm also kind of playing around with an idea for the month of July, with it being my birthday month, that I kind of want to cover random shit that maybe doesn't necessarily apply exactly to the premise of this show, but things that I'm really interested in and really want to talk about or whatever. So I think I might do kind of like a Madigan's birthday month situation. And I was thinking for the recording closest to my actual birthday, which is on July 9th. That episode will be released on the 10th, the day after. But I was thinking of doing an Ask Me Anything episode. So like on Instagram, I'll probably do a story with some Ask Me Anything questions that I'm going to save for the recording. And then also, again, email me, DM me, anything like that. But I feel like, especially now that I'm doing this all on my own, there hasn't been an AMA, ask me anything done in a while. So I'm really curious as to what all of you are thinking, wondering, wanting to ask me about. So I thought that'd be kind of a nice birthday gift for myself to do an AMA episode. So have all of that in, I guess, by like probably the 8th, you know? I don't know. I'll talk about this more in the future, I'm sure. This is all just kind of off the top of my head.
2: Are you ready to shop? Rakuten's Big Give Week is back. That's not just any egg cream. That's a Lemke special, and all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind.
0: This is the story of Harry Dalowitz and how he rose from nothing to become New York's
1: king of the egg cream.
2: So, if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream. Available wherever you get your podcasts.
1: All right, now that I've chattered, let's get into let's get into the episode. I have one topic to discuss this week because it's a big one. It's a heavy one. I feel like it's the thing that everyone has pretty much had on their minds in the U.S. at least for the last couple of days. And before I get into the story, I want to preface with the fact that, like I kind of mentioned earlier in the episode, I was originally going to record this episode Thursday morning, And so I had taken all of my notes and everything about the Titan submersible that had gone missing without it really having any sort of ending or conclusion without us knowing what was going on. It was still a search and rescue mission before I left the house, but I was taking care of one of my little ones today and about an hour and a half after I left the house, I got an alert from Max that there had been somewhat of a conclusion to this story, or at least we have more concrete answers about what happened to the people that were on board this ship but I really didn't want to go back and rewrite all of my notes and go through all of my research again because I really really like what I found and I still think that discussing the search and everything and the possible outcomes there's still a lot there to discuss that I think is important to talk about. So most of these notes I wrote without knowing how these people's lives were going to end. So keep that in mind as I'm going through this episode. I'm going to do my best to correct myself as I go when things don't make sense and things like that. But without further ado... On June 18th, the submersible, which is like a submarine, but not, I think a submersible is just smaller. I kept forgetting to Google the difference, so totally don't listen to me. There's someone out there listening that knows what I'm talking about. And this submersible was named Titan, and it went missing in international waters in the North Atlantic Ocean off the coast of Newfoundland, Canada. The sub is being operated by Oceangate, a privately owned company that provides crude submersibles for tourism, industry, research, and exploration. The Titan is a five-person submissible vessel, and according to Oceangate, is designed to go as deep as 4,000 meters or 13,000 feet. The vessel is 22 feet long and about 23,000 pounds, and it was constructed out of carbon fiber and titanium. They say it's about the size of a minivan. Each dive has a pilot, three paying passengers, and a guide on board. All right, already, how many of you would actually want to do something like this? Like, Are you listening to me talking about the fact that you can essentially just take this tourist attraction down, you know, thousands of feet below the water to see everything under the sea. I don't know if that's exciting to any of you. But that sounds like my worst nightmare. We were watching The Sopranos last night, Max and I and I'm not going to give any details away. Because like I said, in the last episode, if you're not listening to The Sopranos, like what are you doing with your life? But anyways, there's a scene where one of the mafia men shoves a body off of a boat into like a lake or an ocean or something and I don't know even just seeing the body like sink down or when I watched the Titanic and Jack is being brought down there's something about like deep water and falling in and not being able to get out that's really terrifying to me yet I love being on boats and swimming like I'm not scared to swim in big bodies of water or anything like that but the idea of I think like the seclusion and the darkness and the fact that kind of like being in space like there's there's no one to hear you scream like there's no one you can't escape I'd be very claustrophobic it sounds like the worst idea in the world to me but I'm sure there are a lot of the like adventurous types out there that are like sign me up if I had the money I would totally do that and for those people goddess bless you I don't know what else to say So they began taking paying customers to visit the Titanic shipwreck in 2021. The Titanic lies about 12,500 feet under the water. And they're saying that this Titan ship can go about... 13,000 feet. So hmm, we're cutting it a little bit close. When I mentioned, hey, if I could afford it, maybe I would do this. That's because it costs $250,000 per person to take one of these expeditions. It takes about three hours to reach the Titanic underwater and the full dive takes about eight hours. So again, let's picture this. You're stuck. There's five people and essentially a minivan. But that minivan just like drove off the road into the ocean and then just sank all the way down. You're stuck with those people. No, thank you. I'm not I'd never want any part of anything like this. Throughout the journey, the sub is supposed to emit a safety ping every 15 minutes to the above water crew that's monitoring them. And they also have a text message sort of like situation going on where they can send short texts back and forth to the people that are above water to help them navigate and so on and so forth. Because the Titan operated in international waters, it was not subject to any safety regulations and was not certified as seaworthy by any regulatory agency or third party organization. Now are my adventurous listeners starting to get a little bit worried? I hope so. OceanGate has written about how Titan is not certified by a ship classification society, and their reasoning for that is because, according to them, most marine accidents are a result of operator error, not mechanical failure. And since they are so amazing at making sure there are no mechanical errors and their operators are top-notch, there's nothing to worry about. I don't know, anytime that anything isn't regulated by something above them or larger that can make sure that they're staying in line i just feel like there's too much trust involved and you can't trust anybody according to the wikipedia page once the occupants are on board the hatch to the sub is closed and bolted from the outside again terrifying making it impossible to open the hatch from inside the vessel in 2022, journalist David Progue rode in the Titan and noted that it wasn't equipped with an emergency locator button and noted that the surface support vessel lost track of their sub for about 5 hours. He said in an article he wrote about his endeavor, it was very quiet and tense, and they shut off the ship's internet to keep us from tweeting. Are you fucking, if they shut off the internet while I was panicking and stuck and no one could find me at the bottom of the ocean, I mean, yeah, maybe tweeting or going on Instagram would be one thing, like, look what I fucking got into, but most importantly, I would be contacting my friends and family and being like, I love you, I'm going to miss you, I'm dying, like, that would be what I would be doing in this situation. Progue also wrote that before going down, they signed a waiver confirming their knowledge that this sub is an experimental vessel, quote, that has not been approved or certified by any regulatory body and could result in physical injury, disability, emotional trauma, or death. Fun. TV producer Mike Rice, who also completed the expedition before, says the waiver mentions death at least three times on page one alone. Before venturing down to the Titanic, the Titan was carrying tourists to see the wreckage of Andrea Doria starting in 2016, and with that success, they decided to go for the big moneymaker, the big kahuna, Titanic herself. Stockton Rush, one of the founders of Oceangate, along with Guillermo Sanlin, Sanlin, sorry if I'm pronouncing it wrong, said, There's only one wreck that everyone knows. If you ask people to name something underwater, it's going to be sharks, whales, Titanic. At least 46 people have successfully traveled on Oceangate's submersible to the Titanic site in 2021 and 2022, and In 2019, an article published in the Smithsonian Magazine referred to Rush as a daredevil inventor. In 2022, Rush told CBS News, At some point, safety just is pure waste. I mean, if you want to be safe, don't get out of bed. Don't get in your car. Don't do anything. I'm sorry. What's leaving my house or going in the car is a very different thing than going into a minivan and driving off into the ocean and sinking down to see the Titanic. Thank you very much. And this is super fucking fascinating twist, but not really. Stockton Rush is married to a woman by the name of Wendy Rush, who is the great, great granddaughter of Isidore and Ida Strauss, who chose to remain on board the sinking of the Titanic together so that others could escape to safety in their place. They were the real life inspiration for the couple laying on the bed in James Cameron's Titanic. You know, the scene where they're like laying on bed together and holding each other and the water slowly rises around them like, oh, it's like one of the most poignant moments in that whole movie, in my opinion. And while we're on it, did I ever tell you guys? Did I ever tell you all the story of how I saw Titanic for the first time? Because my little nine-year-old girl that I take care of loves this story. I was babysat by kids when I was growing up. So I was five when Titanic came out in 1998. I was in kindergarten. And I was being babysat by these twins who I think were in like fifth or sixth grade and one of they would take turns babysitting me so one of them was with me that night and I really wanted to see the Titanic and it was all I felt like anyone in the world was talking about and I wanted to be a part of it so I told them that oh I've I've seen it before I watch it all the time like totally not a big deal So they let me watch Titanic. Now, in my memory, it could just be from telling the story over and over again that I've over embellished it. But in my memory, my mom like literally walked downstairs to come home as, you know, Rose was getting drawn by Jack totally naked on the couch. But that very well could just be, you know, my own dramatized, imaginative version of that story. But yeah, after that, she was like, fuck it, just keep watching Titanic. And it is one of my favorite movies. I used to watch it when I was sick all the time, whenever I just had like a long day of doing nothing. Because back in my day, children, when we had VHS movies that were really, really long, it would be split. up into two tapes. So (laughs) I would put in one VHS tape, watch the first half of Titanic, put in the second one, watch it sink. So lots of good memories around Titanic. Love the movie. I've been so obsessed with the story for a while. I don't know. I was actually thinking about maybe having Titanic be one of the topics that I talk about during my birthday month because I don't think there's anything very feminist tied to that tragedy, but it's still something that I've been so fascinated by my entire life. So, anyways, Isidore was a businessman and politician who co owned Macy's department stores with his brother, and at one point had represented New York in the US House of Representatives. Isidore met Ida in New York City when they were in their 20s and they fell and stayed madly in love with each other. Their great grandson once told a magazine that they would often be spotted holding hands, hugging and kissing. Another story said that they once caught them necking which is like they were, you know getting it on. Good for them. And this kind of PDA was super rare for people of their status at this time. I think everything was usually pretty straight laced and I feel like a lot of times marriages were still pretty arranged when you got into like richer families or at least like certain marriages were encouraged more over others. So the fact that there would be these like two really wealthy people that would be so hot and crazy for each other just makes my heart smile. Isidore was 67 when the Titanic sank, and his beloved wife, Ida, was 63. Isidore's body was discovered, including a locket with photographs of his children, by a ship weeks after the tragedy, but Ida's body, unfortunately, was never found. Where the two have been memorialized in a mausoleum, their son reads, Many waters cannot quench love, neither can the floods drown it. Oh my god. I want a story about their love. All right, back to Stockton Rush. Stockton Rush is actually one of the five people who have gone missing on this most recent expedition. The other people on board include Hamish Harding, who is a British billionaire, businessman, aviator, and space tourist, Holy damn, who had previously descended into the Mariana Trench, which is the deepest oceanic trench on Earth. He also broke the Guinness World Record for circumnavigating the Earth, where he led a team of aviators in a Gulfstream G650ER. I don't know anything about airplanes, so sorry. I'm sure I totally butchered that. In 46 hours and 40 minutes, paul Henry Nargialat, I'm sure I'm saying their last name wrong. I'm very sorry. They were a former French Navy commander, diver, submersible pilot, and director of underwater research groups, one of which is researching the RMS Titanic. He has made several expeditions to the wreck and supervised the recovery of thousands of artifacts from the Titanic. According to The Guardian, he is widely considered the leading authority on the wreck site. Wow. Shahzada Dawood is a British-Pakistani billionaire businessman and one of the richest people in Pakistan. His 19-year-old son, Sulman, is a student at the University of Strathclyde in Glasgow, Scotland, and is described as having traveling in science as part of his DNA by the New York Times. The first victim that I mentioned after Stockton Rush was Hamish Harding, and Hamish's stepson Brian has come under fire with the media when he decided to go to a Blink-182 concert the day that Hamish was reported missing. He posted a photo of himself at the concert with a caption that read, It might be distasteful being here, but my family would want me to be at the Blink-182 show. It's my favorite band, and music helps me in difficult times. One of the people who were openly critical of Brian was cardi b who took to her instagram stories to air some grievances she had she essentially was saying that he should have been at the house sad or crying for me if he were her family member and she was missing going on to say you're supposed to be right next to the phone waiting to hear any updates about me brian replied by calling her a pos or piece of shit trashy celeb who was trying to get clout off of his family's pain and suffering In my opinion, there's really nothing wrong with Brian going to the concert. The show was held in San Diego, so he was probably in San Diego when he heard about this tragedy occurring, which is nowhere near where all of these events were going on. I'm sure he already had these concert tickets. It's not like his stepdad disappeared and then he was like, oh, let me get these Blink 182 concert tickets or whatever. Like, No, this was his plan, so he went. And there is no one way to grieve or react to something tragic. Sometimes people go into shock. Some people cry and behave the way that Cardi B wants them to. But some people have to hold on to normalcy in order to keep going. We can't judge Brian for how he's reacting to his pain. And I really hate that Cardi B felt it necessary to put her two cents in. I just think it's really tasteless. But brian also made several other videos in response to cardi's messages and he goes a bit low himself in those videos calling her a bitch at one point which i also really really don't like but i know he's grieving and sad so it's very complicated either way this guy's choices should not have been dragged over public opinion just let the guy live and grieve anyway back to the missing submersible There are many errors that could have occurred on board. One possibility was that the Titan's communication equipment may have failed. There could also be a problem with the ballast system, which is responsible for managing the vessel's buoyancy. The Titan could have been hit with a piece of debris or, I wrote this earlier in the day, Sadly, I kind of hope this is what happens, so that they didn't feel any pain. They could have suffered mechanical failure, causing the submersible to implode. I wrote, if this is the case, the occupants would have been killed instantly. And now we do know that that is what happened. We don't know all the details. I'll get into it a little bit further after more discussion. But we do know that the vessel did implode which would have made it so that all of the occupants that were on board would have died immediately. And as sad as that is, they would have been losing oxygen very, very quickly if they were still in the submersible. They said that by Thursday morning, the oxygen would most likely be gone and Thinking about dying due to lack of oxygen sounds a lot more terrifying than not even knowing that it's going to happen and then all of a sudden you're just gone. But it doesn't help the family that's left behind no matter what the case of death is. Search and rescue missions began as soon as they realized the problem, but the U.S. Coast Guard has indicated that the mission has been difficult due to the remote location, weather, darkness, sea conditions, and water temperature. Also, at the beginning of the search, neither U.S. nor Canada had underwater vessels capable of easily assisting the mission. On June 20th, additional vessels came to Boston to assist in the search, one of which contained medical personnel and a mobile decompression chamber rescuers have rushed ships planes and other equipment to the site of the disappearance also on june 20th one of the vessels sonar picked up underwater noises while executing their search and this was all over the news the fact that there were sounds being heard and we don't know what those sounds were it could have really been anything but it was within the area that they thought that the ship would be so Before we knew if these people were still alive or not, and there was this fear about the loss of oxygen, I wrote this, and I still want to include it because I find it really fascinating. So this morning, the critical 96-hour mark would have passed when breathable air could have run out. And even if the submersible is found immediately, according to Jamie Pringle, an expert in forensic geosciences, She says, even if they find it, they still need to get to the surface and unbolt it. Oh my gosh, because this trip, it's not like you just go down and back up super quickly. Like, it's a long experience, and they can't unbolt this thing so far underwater. Also on Thursday morning, a debris field was found at the bottom of the ocean near the Titanic, but the Coast Guard had not yet confirmed this morning whether or not the debris came from the Titan. Apparently it's not very uncommon for there to be debris near the Titanic, but officials may have seen something that stood out and that's why they're mentioning this and that's why we're we're bringing this up. So the area was evaluated on Thursday morning, the U.S. Coast Guard said an undersea robot was sent by a Canadian ship that had reached the seafloor, and a French Research Institute deep diving robot equipped with cameras, lights, and arms was joining them. Authorities are hoping that the sounds heard will help narrow down the search area. Dr. Rob Larder, a marine geophysicist, explained the difficulty of finding a sub of this size. He said, you're talking about totally dark environments. It's just a needle in a haystack situation unless you've got a pretty precise location. Even so, the researchers had been confident in their efforts and refused to refer to it as anything but a search and rescue mission until proven otherwise. And this is where the updated news begins. They found the tail cone of the vessel about 1,600 feet away from the wrecked bow of the Titanic. The debris found was consistent with catastrophic loss of the pressure chamber, meaning that the five men on board likely died immediately due to a catastrophic implosion. And like I mentioned, there's something about that that makes it slightly easier for me, just because I know that there wasn't a long amount of suffering, but it still really hurts me to think about it's very very scary for me to think about I think the reason that this story really took off to well one it involves a bunch of super rich people and I didn't even talk about that I feel like you know because it was this super rare rich person thing that people were interested and people were also willing to put a lot of money and resources toward finding them I don't know if that would happen for just Joe Schmo or anybody but definitely for these prominent fucking rich people you know a a lot of different actions could have been taken because of that but anyways I think that another thing that really drew us all to this story this week was because we can all feel that fear along with you know the people that are possibly on this vessel like when I was reading this story I could feel that darkness and the claustrophobia and that fear of unknowing. I mean, reading about the loss of oxygen, like I'm going to have nightmares tonight, truly. And luckily, <laughs> I'm not going to completely end this episode on such a downer. I really hope that you all enjoy the few minutes of Oranges Are Not the Only Fruit at the end of this episode. If you want any more, go to patreon.com slash Feminist and go to the And go ahead and join that Angry Feminist book club. You can also join that $8 level. I'm not going to bore you by going over all of that again. But I hope that you all listen to that as kind of a palate cleanser after this darker subject matter on this week's mini episode. If you enjoy the show and you think others would too, one of the best ways that you can support me is by going to Apple Podcasts and leaving me a five-star review with a quick sentence about why you enjoy the show and rating me on Spotify or anywhere else that you listen to the show. You can also share an episode with a friend that you think they would enjoy. That would be wonderful. Thank you all so much for listening to another episode. With all of that being said, I encourage you to rage on. Bye. Okay, so now that I've gone through all of that, let's start talking about Oranges Are Not the Only Fruit by Jeanette Winterson. So one of the reasons I think I was drawn to choosing this book was because it intersected with a lot of things that I've discussed on the main feed on this show, which is sexuality and religion. Keegan and I, you know, we're both raised in very religious households, only very different circumstances and family dynamics and things like that. But that was something that we always, felt like we had in common, we could share our childhood religious traumas and, you know, how we got out of, you know, well, I don't want to say got out of, but I guess how We differed from our beliefs that we were, you know, raised to abide by and how we, you know, kind of become our own people and so on and so forth. And this is a story about that. Essentially, it's about a young girl who is raised in an incredibly structured, abusive, cold, unloving, Pentecostal, fundamentalist Household. And this young girl, as she grows up, begins to realize that she's attracted to women, which of course is devil's work for her family and so on and so forth. And one thing that I really loved about this book was that, a lot like Women Talking, it was inspired on a true story. But what was different about this story was that the author of the novel was the person whose life it was based on. So that was something that was in the back of my head. The whole time that I was reading the book, I was like, oh my gosh, I just want to know more about who Jeanette really was. Did this happen? Did that happen? Who is this person really? You know, are these symbols? Are these real? And I really did kind of pull myself back from Googling anything because I didn't want to take myself out of the novel. So... After I was done reading, of course, I started going down tons of rabbit holes kind of digging into the different parts of Jeanette's story that I found interesting, background that I found to be really important. So I really wanted to share all of the knowledge that I learned about that with you today before we go kind of through the chapters and some of my favorite quotes, some of the themes, so on and so forth. So we're not really going to be getting into the actual text of the book today. We're going to go more into the author herself, Jeanette Winterson. And let's begin, shall we? So like I said, Jeanette was raised in a fundamentalist Pentecostal home in Lancashire in the UK, and this is probably the most important reference to have when reading this book. So with that, I figured we should learn more about Pentecostalism, its history, beliefs, and how all of it related to Jeanette's life, both in Oranges and in her real life. Pentecostalism, according to Wikipedia, is a Protestant charismatic Christian movement that emphasizes direct personal experience of God through the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is a really big deal in general to Pentecostals, as the term Pentecost in and of itself addresses an event that commemorates the descent of the Holy Spirit upon the apostles and other followers of Jesus while they were in Jerusalem celebrating the Feast of Weeks, which is more known as a Jewish holiday, which is one of three pilgrimage festivals apparently the date of the celebration also coincides with the revelation of the 10 commandments to Moses and the Israelites on Mount Sinai Pentecostals will worship by speaking in tongues and many are given the powers of divine healing and that is what makes them probably the most different from a regular Christian denomination is that they do have this kind of like Old Testament belief. Well, they have a lot of Old Testament beliefs. We'll get into that for sure. But this is definitely one of them where, you know, the act of miracles, I feel like is something that is really important all throughout the Bible, but is something that is definitely really prominent in the Old Testament. If I'm remembering correctly, I didn't really do any research on the Bible for this because I'm like, fuck it, I'm not doing that. But I know that that's one of the things that kind of makes the fundamentalist a little bit different than like the regular practicing Christian it also kind of reminds me of within you know the Mormon church there's the more modern Mormon church that you know most of the people in Utah (laughs) you know were raised in but then there's the fundamentalist who primarily you know the big difference is that they still believe in plural marriage or polygamy so that's kind of the difference between a regular you know Christian christian church you know maybe like lutheran or methodist or so on and so forth pentecostals are fundamentalists because they perform these healing miracles and they speak in tongues and it's definitely a big show it's the precursor to like the mega churches the televangelism the whole vibe is that they're trying to get you riled up with the holy spirit
0: There's something weird going on with influencers right now. I'm a little freaked out. They just get everything they want. Everything's a little too perfect. Their smiles are a little too straight. They're using filters I can't find anywhere. I know what I'm about to say might sound a little unhinged, but I think it might be witchcraft. At least, that's what Jenna Clayton thought right before she went missing. We're excited to introduce a new show from Realm, If I Go Missing, The Witches Did It, starring Oscar-nominated actress Gabourey Sidibe. When a Black writer goes missing, a white podcast host with a savior complex takes up the cause of finding her and collides with a coven of influencers she suspects are responsible. This show is a little bit of the craft meets Mean Girls meets Get Out. Learn more about If I Go Missing, The Witches Did It at realm.fm and be sure to listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.